0: Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with comedian and actor Rami Youssef. As the child of first-generation Muslim immigrants, Rami Youssef grew up with a sense of practicality about his future. He was drawn to comedy and performing, but he saw no one who looked like him on television. Add to that the fact that acting isn't exactly a pragmatic career path in the first place. As he tells it, I had parents who gave up everything to move to America, and I'm supposed to call them and say, hey, can you pay a bunch of money for me to study the Meisner technique? I didn't have the balls to ask that question. While in college, Rami spent his free time developing his stand-up and sketch comedy skills at UCB, while at the same time studying political science and economics. He auditioned for a small role in the Nick at Night series, See Dad Run, and he got the part, and so he decided to drop out of college and move to Los Angeles. That gig lasted for three seasons, and then Rami got stuck in acting purgatory. According to Audition Feedback, he wasn't good-looking enough to be the lead, he wasn't nerdy enough to play the nerd, and he wasn't ethnic enough to play the ethnic guy. That's when Rami realized, you never know where people are going to put you. It's nice when you get to put yourself where you want to be. So Rami took charge of his own destiny. He had writing skills, plenty of personal experience, and a unique cultural point of view. What he came up with was Rami, his Hulu series based on his experience growing up in New Jersey and coming to terms with his Muslim faith. It's being hailed as the first American television show to feature a Muslim family, but more importantly, it throws away Muslim caricatures and depicts rich and complex human storylines about family, faith, and cultural differences. Rami joins off-camera to talk about the moment his parents finally acknowledged he had made it, how puberty will be forever linked with global terrorism in his mind, and why stand-up comedy makes everything else seem easy. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Rami. Sam. How you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm drinking just hot water. Are you really? Yeah.
0: We didn't have any cold water?
1: No. We did, you did, but I, I was reading online that if you do like just hot water with lemons, like what yeah. the Japanese do. Yeah. I honestly don't even remember the benefits. They were just saying do it. Like top of the day, hot water and lemon. Really? Yeah, but there was no lemon, so now it's just hot water, which I feel it feels we like We didn't uh, have any lemon? Well it feels like when someone <laughs> Can drinks someone get just, him some lemon. <laughs> you know, when Someone drinks just milk. It's like the creepiest thing. You're I really, agree. Just like, well, especially a glass you're a kid. of milk. Yeah, kids. Yeah, because it's it's supposed to help with the bones and stuff. Yes. I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming on here. That's I great. I am
0: enthralled with your show. It's called Rami. It's on Hulu, and I have to say that in watching your show, I became completely educated in an area that I've never learned anything about, which is Muslim faith. Mm. And you know, in media and entertainment, it's never really been fairly or accurately presented before. So to watch your show, which is certainly comedic, but it's dramatic, and you feel like you're getting inside someone's life and going through their personal struggles, and it's the first show that's depicted a Muslim family on on television, correct?
1: Yeah, probably at this level for American TV to, to get this nuanced on an Arab Muslim family, yeah, we, it hasn't happened, and and it's interesting because it's like that that was so much of the dialogue around it when we even got the deal announced, and you know you know the pilot picked up, and yeah. kind of everyone was like, oh man, this is the 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 Muslim family sitcom we've been waiting for, and all of that, and and so uh, which the, it really isn't. No. <laughs> I don't think this is what anyone was waiting for exactly. No, but it this but it's a, certainly not a
0: sitcom and it certainly isn't that that trope that we come to expect of let's look at the immigrant story in America and we'll we'll do it with Muslims this time.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. not that at all. No, we kind of went out of our way to not do that. It's 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 a tough thing to take on and not that I don't want to have responsibility. I mean, my responsibility though is to do what interests me and so so much of this show is kind of saying you know how could i show this family how could i show my experience uh, without feeling weighed down by things that i feel i should do or have to do and and so we were really excited to just kind of make something that uh was you know what we wanted to make and what we wanted to watch yeah yeah
0: well you make a good point because i would think the first thing that comes up is yeah if if you're if you're the first at anything, yeah, it's harder not to consider your audience. Or if you're, yeah. you know, in this case, your entire religion has been depicted in entertainment forever as bad people. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like, how do you not consider the responsibility,
1: even if yeah. even
0: if you do want to tell a personal story?
1: Well, the idea of firsts is not interesting to me because it, it operates from scarcity. So it's kind of like this it's not only saying something's the first there's this insinuation that it could be the last (laughs) because we're so focused on this small window and so to be like well you're the first Muslim show and then it's like okay we gotta we gotta use all of we have here because we're not going to get it again. And, and and it's really interesting to see the relationship this show has created with an audience, right? Because this is an Arab Muslim family in the show that I made. Most Muslims in America don't even fall under that category, but it's what I am. And so it's what I chose to zone in on. Right. And so a lot of people who are Muslim will watch the show. If they're Arab, they're like, oh man, this is really cool. This feels like home. But if they're not, they're like, this isn't me. So you know? made a show for like nine people. I made a show for nine people. That's Your how family. I, that's how I felt. I felt like I made a show for nine people and I was okay with it and then I've gotten the craziest responses of who it's resonating with. Right. Because it, it is, it is, um, it was something really funny that happened with our show was like, um, I think two weeks before it came out, I started getting all these messages from people around the world being like, yo man, when season two? That was amazing. And I was like, what do you, season one's not out. <laughs> and then I realized that someone had, like, you know, there's Pirated. press screeners that go oh, yeah. out. Right, someone sure. had ripped the press screeners. I think most of them are, like, down now or whatever. But at the time, I was like, this is kind of amazing. Like, like I can't believe that people are watching it this way. And for the record, you should watch it on Hulu. You know, get a free trial. Yes. You know yeah, <laughs> Watch it legally. But I, I couldn't believe the... Um, yeah, the con- I felt like I made it for nine people. And not only were people around the world really into it, but also, I mean, I got like an email two weeks ago from this guy who was like, I'm an evangelical Christian father of three, and I am Rami. You know, I mean, just hitting at the conversation I always wanted to see was, what does it look like to have what you believe and then what you actually do. Right. And what is that space in the middle? And what that, is that struggle. That struggle. Yeah. And that's a struggle that anyone could have. I mean, it could be you're Muslim and you want to live up to the ideals of your faith. Or it could be that you're just trying to live up to your higher self. And what does it look like when you try to do that and you fail? So, I mean, we have an episode where my character tries to do Ramadan, you know, where you abstain yeah, exactly. from food and water and all desires, like sex, everything. And you see him kind of start off great and then you see him fail, you know. And that, you don't need to be Muslim to get that. You know, you could be someone who wakes up and goes to the 6 a.m. yoga class. Yeah, or, and you're like, or just trying be to be on a diet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm going to do great and look at me like I'm eating egg whites for breakfast. Breakfast, And then it's 2 a.m. and you're at Wendy's. And so. you're like, I've fallen. So on a level, there's this thing where it's like the first Muslim uh, show, right? right? But the other, the, the if there's a first that I was interested in, I wanted to see someone dealing with their feelings towards God and guilt uh, in a way that was human and that was funny and that wasn't blown out of proportion. Because I feel like all the stories we see around religion and faith are like, Angels in heaven, and it's super blown out, right? Major stakes. Major yeah. stakes. So yeah. it's like the priest who like does a sermon and then does coke off a stripper, and you're like, what? How could he still be the priest? You know, like there's, exactly, always, like, yeah. there's always like that kind of thing. But you know, something that me and Gerard, who you know, I Gerard, co-produ- Gerard yeah. I co-produced with. We I just remember like must have been like five years ago. we were just walking around, and we were like, man, where's the where's the thing about people like us who do believe in God, you wouldn't even think that we did. But you know, we have a relationship that we're trying to figure out, and it's just a human thing. You know, it's not this apocalyptic question. Yeah. It. It's just what does it look like to be um, an everyday person who wants to be a better person and who's doing that through faith. And what your show does
0: so brilliantly is that it, once again, it, it proves that at the we're all more related than we think in terms of the experience we're having on Earth. Mm-hmm. And I wondered when you first started pitching this show around if you had to sort of educate people on the kind of show you wanted to be because we all have seen the studio notes which is like, oh, it needs more conflict. Or How did you sort of square that with pitching it and, and changing people's perceptions of what it was going to be? Well,
1: the pitch is a lot different than the show. I, I I think there's there's this thing where, on a level in in the pitch, you're almost you're almost pitching like a culture clash. This conversation we've been having where it's like oh east versus west, like could it work? And but the values are so different. And so you kind of pitch it that way, but then you start making the show and you're like, there's not there's not a lot of meat on East versus West. Right. Because we're all just people. Where there really is a story to tell is someone's internal conflict. Yes. You know, is someone dealing with their faith. So I think when we pitched the show, it was totally in the context of this is a character who does believe in God, which is, and, and who wants his faith and wants his culture and, you know, wants it to be part of his life, which was different from what we were seeing. You yeah. know, I think most of the stories that we saw of... A character like me was a first generation kid who was basically like mom and dad I don't want anything to do with this yeah and the subtext is kind of like you brought me here and I deserve to be white just like my friends right. like that's kind of the you know the the underlying yeah thing the of idea of, of, of
0: the the kid wants to be Americanized and the parents want to pull, them yeah, back, wanna pull, to them pull back. yeah want to pull them back
1: yeah and there's the conflict and we were like what if we just erase that tension you know what if it's not it's it's it's, it's not that. Everyone's trying to figure out where they're at. And you actually see the kid wanting to hold on to the faith in a way that, uh, arguably, he's fighting harder than the parents. So I think when you pitch the show, it kind of feels a little more like you're going to see some drama between communities and you're going to see you know, something that's overtly political. And then I think when we actually dove into the show... It was so personal. It's small moments, yeah. And so, what you find yourself fighting for with a network is tone, you know, and really fighting to be able to keep that and to be able to keep the stakes small and to and, be able. And to, you're a first time, you know, showrunner,
0: creator, writer, all that stuff. So yeah. I imagine like it's got to be tough to, to be able to fight that fight and and also toe that line of you know I I don't want to. I don't want to lose this opportunity, but I have to recognize this opportunity. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, Were there some scary moments with that of trying to fight for what you knew was right?
1: Yeah, there are times where you have to call and, and really say, well, this is why it has to be this way. I get that it's not usually that way, but that's why it has to be like that for this. Or this is why I have to direct this episode. And I know I've never directed anything, but trust me, I'm the only one who can do it. Because the it, first
0: it, episode you directed was Strawberries, right? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, yeah which is yeah. episode four of the show. and yeah. And the entire episode is about a young version of you in yeah. middle school dealing with 9-11 and puberty. Yeah.
1: And that's a big deal to say,
0: I have to do this.
1: Well, that was one of those things where they're like, but we haven't seen anything you've directed. and, and, and show sure I had to say that, like, that doesn't... I don't you know, have a reel. I don't, I don't have a reel, and also it doesn't matter. Like you just have to know if I'm making this show, then I can direct any of the episodes. But... I'd have to direct this one. And so that was the kind of thing that is, you know, six or seven phone calls and, you know, spans out, and and, and you just have to keep going and keep going. How does your personal confidence do in those moments? You know, it's amazing to get into this after doing stand-up for so long, because you go on stand-up, you know, you go on stage and you just eat shit so much. Like, you go in thinking, I got this amazing joke, and then you go up, and, and, and it, you don't. <laughs> and it's not a great joke. Right. But then you figure it out. I mean, there are so, you know, I just shot a special. There's so many jokes in that special that when I first did them, they tanked for weeks. Like the bit just didn't work until it did. And so for me, there's nothing like you're never going to feel the shame you feel in front of, you know, a couple hundred people when things go flat for 10 minutes right. than on some call with an executive. Like that's fine. I can make that call 20 times. Like you just keep going, you keep going, you keep going. And I mean, you're even in a writers' room and something tanks and you're like, oh, "Okay, whatever. We're all like a bunch of paid writers and we're, you know, in this room and we're going to figure it out." Like none of that stuff Really gets to you in the same way that it can when you're, you know, at a bar doing stand-up in front of people who didn't even think they were coming to the bar for stand-up. They right. were coming to the bar to talk to their friends. It's like there's nothing more humiliating than telling people, "Look, I know you didn't even know this was happening, but I need you to be quiet and listen to my opinion instead of be on this date you're on." I mean, stand-up is, is insane. Hey, folks,
0: let's take a quick break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. Now, I can tell you that I sleep on a Helix mattress every night, and I love it. I am someone that has destroyed my body over the years, doing things like surfing and skateboarding and motorcycles and carrying kids on my shoulders and all that stuff. And I've had a lot of back problems in my life. And I can tell you honestly that since I started sleeping on a Helix Sleep mattress, I've just not had those problems, and I get a great sleep. And the question is, why do I get a great sleep? Well, for one thing, they have a unique way of matching a mattress to a person. You go online to Helix Sleep, you take a quiz, it takes about two minutes, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Whether you're a side sleeper or a hot sleeper, whether you like a plush or a firm bed, with Helix, there's no more confusion and no more compromising. Helix Sleep was even awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2019 by GQ and Wired Magazine. And CNN called it the most comfortable mattress they've ever slept on. So just go to helixsleep.com slash off-camera, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And for couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up if you don't love it. But you will. And here's the best deal. Helix is offering up to $125 off all mattress orders for our listeners. So you can get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com slash offcamera. That's helixsleep.com offcamera for up to $125 off your mattress order. helixsleep.com slash offcamera. Now back to the show. One thing that I think that you couldn't prepare yourself for would be how almost you have to, to make the show that you made, to make it as personal as you made it, to make it resonate with me and and an audience, you would have to expose your own shortcomings. And the show is autobiographical enough to where me and a a whole audience is sitting there going, well, that happened to you. (laughs) So I was curious about what it felt like to realize you know in making this show you're going to expose yourself a little bit more than most of us have to do
1: yeah I mean it was it was very um, it, it was it was hard I mean it was hard mostly because I, I I was really curious you know as to how my family would take it right. <laughs> and, and and I think for me making the show I, I always say that the character is emotionally true to me it's not like everything that happened in the show has happened to me but When the show's called Rami, and my real name is Rami, I have to put this out and say, you know what? A lot of people aren't even gonna see that there's a difference. I need to be prepared for people to think that this is reality. Now, you know, because I know what's real and what's not real, my family knows what's real and what's not real, but the rest of the world as far as they know, this is a documentary. Yeah. And so that's a risk that I really thought about. And I'd be like, man, do I really want to put this out there? What if my family, my parents, my this and that and that? And everyone was just like, man, just fucking, just do it, man. Just fucking What's an it. example
0: of one that, that you had to think twice about?
1: Dude, every other scene. I mean, I don't even know where to start. I mean, just from the pilot, I mean, we have that scene at the end where, you know, this girl asks me to choke her, you know, in yes. the pilot. And that was something where I was like, am I really going to do this, like... Choking scene on TV, yeah. you know, and and I love the scene, and but man, when we were shooting it, I was like, every time we would cut, I'd be like, I'm so sorry, you know, to, to Dina who I was acting right. with, I'd be like, I'm sorry, and she's like, No, this is great, you know, this, the scene's going great, And I'd be like, Man, this is crazy, and you're and, like,
0: Yeah, but I wrote it, and no, I'm making you do it. I I'm
1: making you do it. I feel, <laughs> I feel insane, and and it was one of those things where there were so many times where I'd go, oh man, you know, it would be crazy. I mean, I can't do this, but you know, it would be crazy, and then I think of a scene, and then. That's the scene we'd do. My dad, though, called me, too, and he was like, is this what kids are doing? Is that, is that is that what's happening with sex now? And I was like, man, I don't... Yeah, it's happening, man. It's happening out there.
0: Well, it does bring up a question of what your real family thought of your casting choices and how they were depicted. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. was there some funny discussions you had with your parents?
1: Yeah, well, they were looking... I, I didn't show them any of the show until the week before it came out. You didn't? Yeah, because I was like, I don't... I, I can't. I care too much about what you think. Even if they said nothing, that would get in my head. Like, if they watched it and they were like, well, you do what you gotta do, I'd be like, oh man, they hated it. You know. It, so all it, the years was- of
0: stand-up, your family can still get right in your head.
1: Well, the funny thing is, they hadn't really seen my stand-up that much either. <laughs> yeah. So <See>, you're because- <laughs> living sort of this this other life. <laughs> because look, I live in LA, they live in New Jersey. So, you know, they would come out and see me do stand-up sometimes when I went to New York, but I wasn't gonna do my crazy shit when they came out, you know. I, I was very much needing to incubate it and then right. I think there's always a part in the back of my head that knew, no, they'll get it. Like they'll be cool. Because they are cool, they're really cool. But there's just that incubation period in the middle where it's too sensitive. It's just I can't, I can't. You let can't you bring in them right up to now. speed all at once. Yeah, one twenty right minute now. set. Yeah, it's too much. Just you know, just wait. And and so that is such a yeah, it was such a balancing act uh, of kind of you want to create your own space to to make it you know the conversation that you really want to have but it's tough but I I really I couldn't show it to them until it was right about to come out because there's multiple things that my parents still don't agree with in the show that I did Um, but they get the overall message and they really like the overall message you know but there's individual things that they're not into you know and I kind of wanted to give them the ability to tell their friends you know well he didn't show me anything. You know he wouldn't. You know he wouldn't. He we wouldn't did not sanction he, he this. Yeah, he's he crazy. Yeah, he's he went crazy. off to LA. He exactly. I was like, I'm giving you like the just entire. What is it? What is it? Plausibility, denial, yes. plausibility. You I'm know, giving you plausible deniability. <laughs> yeah. I'm giving you plausible deniability. You were not let in, and he has a show on Hulu. What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we had nothing to do with it. Uh, was was the gift I wanted to give them instead of you know stressing them with you know. What are people going to think?
0: One of the reasons I like this show a lot is there's some subversiveness in it, just like in your stand-up. On the service it's entertainment, but it's also meant to get us thinking in a different way. And, and art, good art should be uncomfortable like that, and and not only uncomfortable to the audience, but it should be uncomfortable to the creator, too.
1: Oh, yeah, my show, a lot of it is uncomfortable to me. I mean, there, there are just things that I'm like, oh, man, I we're going to do this. All right, we're going to do it. Yeah. And that's how I know... We're in a good spot, and 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 it took me a second to really settle into that, and and I like that, and I never want to be desensitized to a point where you know I'm not uncomfortable by something. Sure. So it's kind of finding the right, you know, finding that right balance. Yeah. And that is a good radar, and and so much of that for me is because I you know believe in my faith, and and I am a practicing Muslim that I know when I'm touching something that is gray. And, and for me, questioning it in the right way feels like an important expression of faith. You know, I think that you know, good faith has questioning and good faith has testing and understanding where we are as humans. And so I use that as a barometer as to what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do you know, there's that quote about television that it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. So this isn't telling you what to do, it is telling you what happens, and it's kind of playing in those spaces. And so that's so much of what this show is, is how can me as someone who is a person of faith uh, push certain lines, certain things that we don't have a framework to talk about if you're in a community of faith because you kind of don't want to talk about it. You want to say, no, it's not happening or that's not what we do. Right. you could watch the show and kind of say, well, oh, look at, look at the character of Rami and look at what he did. That's what not to do. It's almost like my character is so flawed that it's like a not. Like I, I was kind of joking with, um, there are people on Twitter kind of going off about the show. And there was one who was like an imam, you know, like a religious leader. And he right. was like, I can't believe this character Rami does this, does that, does that. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. That's kind of what this show is for right? Because you can't, as an imam, get up in the congregation and call up an individual person and say, well, you know, Ahmad did this and did that. Right. But you could say, hey, you know that Rami show? That shit's bullshit. And, and that's, a, that's a, it's an amazing, it's like we created a frame of reference for communities to talk about this. That's fascinating that you've created
0: something that, that can actually change your, the conversations about your own faith
1: yeah we don't fabricate anything in the show it's not like we make up something that hasn't happened or that isn't happening every day uh, but it gives people I think a reference point within our community and our culture to talk about things which is why for me this show is for that those nine people yeah because I'm like no no this is just for us to talk about stuff we got to talk about and whoever else finds something in here that's amazing but it actually is for the nine people
0: Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Quip. If you listen to this show, you know that Quip has been a longtime sponsor for us. And you also know that my family and I use Quip toothbrushes. What Quip is, is an electric toothbrush that is small and compact and runs on a single battery that lasts for three months. There's no cords to plug in, there's no bulky charger. It's a really simple and beautiful design. And the greatest thing about Quip, especially because summer is upon us, is that it is great on vacation. It is so small and compact, you pop it in your dop kit. When you get to the hotel, there's this special adhesive and you can just stick it to the mirror of the hotel and there's a cover for the bristles and the battery always works. And it's just sort of like this magic electric toothbrush that is way superior to the disposable ones that always are gross and dirty in your job kit. So here's some of the features of the toothbrush. They have sensitive sonic vibrations for an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums because some people brush too hard and electric toothbrushes can often be too abrasive. They have a built-in 2-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you to switch sides. And the multi-use cover works as a stand and as I said, it mounts to the mirror and slides over your bristles to pack and protect your quip on the go. Now here's the cool thing. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist recommended schedule every three months for just $5, a friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association, and they're backed by over 25,000 dental professionals. They have thousands of verified five-star reviews. And they now have a new kid's brush, which is the same as the original version, but it's just tweaked for size down mouths. Kids are inspired to brush better and more often with oral care that looks and feels like the products the adults in their life use. And they're proud to use Quip. You can help them develop a grown-up routine without childish gimmicks. So I love Quip because I love efficiency, function, design, and ease of use, and there's no better toothbrush than Quip. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash offcamera right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash offcamera. Now back to the show. Another first that I think this show is is that, that... it's a completely non-white ensemble cast. Yeah, for the most part, right? For the very most part. Yeah. And then I think the most prominent white cast member is in a wheelchair. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: And the character of Steve in the show, who's does he have muscular dystrophy? Yeah. Okay, so what I found out reading about you is that it, that's your friend from school. Yeah, yeah, and and that he became an actor and you put him in the show and he's playing your friend like there's some crossover there
1: like yeah. this is a close personal friend of yours you know I've known him since I think we met first and third grade and what's yeah. amazing is
0: you know there's, there's a scene that really sticks out for me where this is where Rami is sort of like Kramer in that he doesn't have a filter <laughs> when he speaks about certain things and and there's a scene where he's sitting at the table with Steve and Steve's mom, and Steve's in his wheelchair. Right. And Rami's just saying how much her life sucks because she has to take care of Steve.
1: <laughs> to be fair, Rami is very high.
0: You know, at, at that time, point. yes. At that time. But again, what a, what a great device to say what you really think, right? Yeah. yeah. And I'm always wondering the intention behind certain things like that, especially when you see a scene that's sort of a little bit of an outlier in the grand narrative. Yeah. But I was curious what you wanted to say by speaking so honestly and directly to somebody about things that people don't normally say to each other.
1: Yeah, it was uh you know, we talked about that scene a bunch. Steve and I and and uh that wasn't
0: his actual mom playing. <laughs> no, okay. No, it wasn't. We also I mean, <laughs> I don't know at this point how much is
1: <laughs> We also prepped his actual mom. We were like, "Listen, it's absurdist. Don't take it personally. Like we're hey, getting forget into their family for a <laughs> minute, yeah, having yeah, to tell like, their <laughs> <laughs> friends." Well, it was you know, in an odd way, it's kind of loving. You know, it's almost like, hey, I see you. Yeah. You know, I see the pain you have to carry and the weird questions that no one wants to talk about. And I think that through so many things that are really tough, you know, whether it's having a sick kid, whether it's having a sick parent, or whether it's uh, being in a difficult relationship, this is an area where I think parents of kids don't get afforded the ability to go to the dark corner and joke about it. No one wants to touch it. It's like inhuman, almost, that we can't tell dark, fucked up jokes about people who are in those situations because those jokes actually help people have some sort of catharsis and laugh and release a little bit of air, but we don't touch it. So we almost like put people in a glass box because we're like, no, we can't go there. And so the funny thing is, I was like, Steve, what'd your mom think of the scene? And he was like, dude, I could hear her laughing from two rooms over she was cracking up dying laughing because it is dark and it is that and it's and and it touches on a thing that you know people act like we can't go there we can't talk talk about those things and that's actually you know and i and i feel like we've interacted with a couple of people who not only are in steve's community you know other people with muscular dystrophy and their families but they all not only really love that scene but love the character of Steve and how we don't protect him and how we don't put him in this like glass box of make-a-wish treatment and act like there's no fun to be had or there's no dirt to be put on a character like that who, you know yeah okay he's in this situation but just because he's in this situation doesn't mean that you like him you know (laughs) like like can someone can someone have muscular dystrophy and also be an asshole (laughs) and the answer is yeah you know and and that's important you know that's an important thing
0: well uh, you know it's doing exactly what you're doing when you show muslims on television you're saying like you can't make something or someone or a religion or something into a cliche and expect to ever really understand anything about it. You can't. You can't sketch anything.
1: Well, it, it cuts both ways. I mean, there's a, there's a version of the way we're viewed that is completely defined by politics, and you get put in a negative space. But then there's a version that's like, you know, you're put almost on the flip where it's like, you know, someone will say like "Salam alaikum." Like, I know it means peace. You know, <laughs> and they go out of their way to really like, you know, step into your place and right. and and really, you know almost say, you're perfect, and it's like, well, no, we're not, don't, it's not, it's not that either, you know, and so, so much of what's exciting to me is, yeah, finding that, like, we can be not the enemy and not the hero, right. that we can be human, which is what every other person is afforded. It's about showing things as they are without judgment uh, and letting that kind of speak for itself, I think, is, is way more effective than trying to push any sort of, you know, this is how you should feel. Right.
0: Well, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the scene, you, or the, the episode you directed, Strawberries, because it you were in middle school when 9-11 happened. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming from the show. And you said once in an interview that there was like a popular kid in school that convinced everyone at school that you were a terrorist. <laughs> yeah. And I was curious how the way your self-identity got set at that time, Because, I mean, I thought I had a hard time in middle school because I was little and I was bullied and this and that, but I certainly didn't have the whole school thinking I was a terrorist.
1: (laughs) Well, 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 there was this, it was interesting because there was this, um, I remember everyone actively trying to figure out if I was Middle Eastern. That was the whole, you know... There was this whole debate because Egypt's in Africa, and I was kind of trying to tell people, "No, I'm African. You know, like I'm basically black. You know, and and kind of trying <laughs> to lie." <laughs> Your seventh-grade
0: brain is saying those things because, like, I gotta, I gotta spin this
1: I in a better this. direction. I gotta spin it. Um, yeah, so much of that episode, and, and really, was kind of what 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 interests me the most is looking at something that is so political from like a really, really human place. And so we see this young kid who all his friends are basically talking about masturbating. And they're like, yeah, I've done it. And and he's the only one who hasn't. And that's horrifying. You know, when everyone's talking about this thing and you're the only one who hasn't. you don't know what the deal is. That's already 9 11 you know that's already that's already horrifying devastating this is threat level Everyone, threat level red <laughs> I mean that is already oh my god yeah you know that's already crazy and then actual nine eleven happens and then you see him go even further down you know and further so it so much of that story was you know looking at how how does how does something like that further compound with what's already a tough experience being a kid on top of that, then an immigrant kid, on top of that, then a Muslim immigrant kid. You know, and, and how can we look at those layers and how can we look at how that manifests and, yeah. and affects someone's identity. You know, there's this scene uh, between my young self and uh, what is basically kind of his vision of Osama bin Laden. Right, it's you know, kind of so, like a dream. Yeah, it's kind of like a dream. And it was based on a dream that I used to have when I was a kid where it was just this weird thing where I thought because we were the Muslim family in my town, we were so close to New York, I used to have this horrible dream that, you know, bin Laden would come to our house thinking that because we were Muslims, we were his friends. (laughs) And so I would have this nightmare of him sitting, you know, in my kitchen and and I remember it would just be, it was the the scariest thing, you know, the scariest thing I think of. And I remember, like, having these nightmares where I'd be like, I'm not like you, like, why are you making it hard for us? And, like, all of these things that a kid who is 12 would think. And and for me, it, it did this boomerang thing where it kind of, like, it started making me really afraid of who I was, but then I started to really own who I was. You know, it, it, it flipped, you know, because it, I,
0: it made you grow up quicker because you had to ask all these hard questions about your own yeah. history and identity that, that kids normally wouldn't have to start questioning.
1: Yeah, well, you start looking into your faith and be like, is it, is it violent? Is it what everyone's saying? Is it this terrible thing? And then I realized it, it wasn't. And I, and I realized, oh, wait, no, this is actually something that I really identify with. And this is something that is really important to me and, and, and became a huge part of my life. You know, and and so it it did this thing where I actually wanted to embrace who I was in a way that I might not have if it didn't happen. When I think back, it was really I, I had really great classmates. I really had really great school, but it, it it puts you in your head in a way, right? So it's not like I was endlessly bullied, but it was kind of like people were asking certain things, and there were a couple of situations that they moved on from and I didn't, right? you know, right. And, and that's actually the way I think more often than not plays out, where you're a kid and you're so sensitive, it really only takes like three scenarios, and then all of a sudden, everyone kind of moves on and does whatever they're doing, you're still sitting with it, and you're yes. like, whoa, who am I, where am I, what's happening? Yeah. So in a weird way, it's the kind of thing that makes you an artist. It, it actually kind of becomes the thing where, oh, you, in order to talk about things, you kind of need a little bit of a separation from it and and I felt a separation and it was very internal I don't think that it was you know and and again that's why so much of the show is about like this internal interrogation. We really get right. into the heads of characters I mean in that episode you see like a specific moment of bullying, but it's really more about the path that he goes down in his head he's already down that path before anyone said anything right and then someone saying something just that's the final nail for him to really go down that spiral. And, and so, starting it from there, and, and for me, just in my own personal life, most of my conflict has lived internally, you know, because I don't present as anything too clearly. Like, like it's not like someone looks at me and is like, that dude's Muslim. Like, I don't think people know, right. you know, it, right. it's kind of like a step two of getting to know me. Um, so so a lot of the ways that I've looked at it, I mean, ha- have been different. There, there are people I know who wear a headscarf. They face visible external discrimination. There are people I know who present just very clearly, okay, this person is Arab, this person is South Asian, uh, this person is black. They face very clear external discrimination. Uh, for me, that's not my story. My story is seeing those things, getting a bit of a taste of it, but really that internal questioning, that internal struggle, and that creating the separation between you and those who are in front of you and around you. And then that kind of just makes this hub of where, you know, it can go many ways. And then for me, it kind of went the way of making things and telling stories from that distance.
0: Right. Do you think that your parents, um, like looking back now as an adult, do you see more of what your parents had to go through than, than what
1: you saw as a kid? Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it... Uh, it didn't even hit me. You know, I think they went through more than we went through. Yeah. Like, it didn't even cross my mind until years later where I was like, oh, there's just kind of these periphery friends and people that were in our life that just kind of stopped being in our life at some point. And then I realized, oh, that was because of 9-11. Like, that was, like, we kind of stopped talking to people. You know, we stopped doing all of that. And it it feels on a level, sometimes I get, even a little annoyed with myself bringing it up or harping on it. But on the other hand, I feel a responsibility to talk about it because I think that if we don't and if we don't talk about the way it's affected everyone and if we don't talk about how like the humanity of how inhuman that was affected kids like me, affected families like mine, and we mourn it just as much, uh, I think that's an important part of the conversation yeah. to bring out. That this thing caused us a lot of pain, not even because of what we received, but just because it was horrible. Totally. And being, and, and, and I think opening up that conversation is and, and seeing it from the angle of a kid like we did on our show um, is a nuance that I would hope, if it's kind of can be brought to the conversation, is the kind of thing that creates more empathy and creates a better dialogue, a more nuanced dialogue. And those dialogues are kind of the only thing that can save us from... More problems.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, if you if you're tired of talking about it, you've you've gone in exactly the wrong direction.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, like, it, it's just it's the battle, right? It's like totally. It, 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 it's 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 that's the thing, you know. No, it's,
0: it's so that episode's so impactful, and and you know, even just the little touches, like the, the father on the show going out and just um, putting up an American yeah, flag in front of the house yeah. the next day, and yeah. and you realize like every angle of this was, you know, like. It's like being a comedian, and maybe this is a good transition to you being a comedian because you have this new special on HBO called Feelings, but in it you say that things look weird if you step out of your own culture, and, and in it you give an example of, of women wearing headscarves and covering themselves up versus uh, a girl stepping out of an Uber in New York in winter wearing a mini skirt and high heels and yeah. how strange from different cultures things can look. Yeah. But I think exactly what a comedian has to do is to be able to look at our culture and our behavior as human beings without filters. And that's where we find that transcendent thing that is funny because it reveals ourselves to ourselves. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, and I guess I wondered where you developed that power of,
1: of observation. It was again kind of like feeling feeling like the personal side of political things that were happening from really early age so it's like you you feel you know you, you see kind of these things that are happening and then knowing that you're somehow like a byproduct of the other end of it of what they're talking about and so it it becomes the lens that you look at everything you know where how is this really big thing also really small and then you kind of just start comparing you know and you start looking at it and okay everyone talks about uh these wars that are happening overseas what is it like when through your family you actually know someone in it this really big thing became really small you know
0: so so tell me about how you started the how, teach yourself how to write comedy?
1: Um, you know, I I started with sketch. So I would uh-huh. like write sketches okay. with my friends, one of them being Steve, who's in my show. And right. so we would kind of make these things and and shoot them. And then it slowly started to turn into a bit of stand-up and more so especially when I moved to L.A. and most of my sketch partners were in New York and I was kind of like, okay, I still want to get on stage and talk about things. And And so I think a lot of it came from my interest in just like political things that were happening at first so I would kind of have you know thoughts on something that happened that day and it was definitely a process that kind of started with you know looking at things through that critical lens and then transitioning into looking at yourself through a critical lens and it was interesting too because you know I've been developing my show for like the last couple of years and and even the 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 ability to talk about things more bravely in the show helped me even talk about things more bravely on stage with stand up as well so they've kind of been like feeding each other Right. and they're very much like companion pieces in that sense um, and and so yeah it's it's just using that to to continue to to push it and and push more and 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 almost the thing i like about religion which is like you know you can use it to be you know, more connected spiritually and step outside of yourself and therefore be a better version of yourself. Yeah. Is how I feel about comedy, which is like how can I use this and explore this to further kind of go at my ego and go at my desires and go at those things and and talk about them and and try and get to the bottom of it.
0: When you came to LA, what was the goal, was it to be an actor, to be a writer, to create your own show, to be a comedian?
1: I always kinda sucked at goals. Like I kind of was, you know, I I I went to school for political science and economics. I ended up dropping out. Um, but it took me so long to kind of be like, oh wait, no, maybe I should be doing acting, even though even though it's the thing I do every. Like, I would go to school and then at night I would go to improv jams at like midnight, you know. And I was kind of in denial. And then I was. Why? Why
0: do you think you were in denial rather than
1: leaning into that all the way? Uh, There's no cultural reference point to go into show business for me. I didn't know anyone who was in it. Like, my biggest goal when I was living in New Jersey was to perform at the UCB Theater in New York, which was like under a grocery store. Right. I thought that was, that was Hollywood. I couldn't even, the idea of even being on TV was insane to me. It's not a thing that Arabs do, you know, it's not like we're, we are on TV, it's not part of our, you know, right. American culture. Right. So, so
0: was it just like, you wouldn't even give that dream very much credibility? I was, it was,
1: I was too practical on a level, I think. You know, and right. I think, especially as you start becoming like an adult or whatever, you, you know, you, you don't, you start thinking about, well, how can I live? And that's so much too of the mindset of, I think, coming from you know parents who co- you know a family that that is you know new here is number one is you want to build an infrastructure, you want to build survival. I mean, even if you come from a super rich family and your dad was an actor. To, to go okay I'm gonna go into acting that dad actor would be like hey man it's really hard yeah <laughs> right are you sure You're right and so, so, so times that by times that by 10 and then it's like you have you know parents who've like given up everything and then you, you what I'm supposed to call them and say hey uh can you pay a bunch of money so I can go study the meisner technique <laughs> it's like what what are you even talking about I wouldn't even I didn't even have the balls to ask that question because it was like I'm not gonna put them in that situation it's not fair to them so
0: that's interesting so you were you were totally drawn to sketch and improv and stand up and all that stuff but you could never allow it to be like a real yeah, business plan. It, no, here. it
1: couldn't be a reality until it just took over. And then there was such a like fate element. I ended up booking a TV show that brought me here. What was that? It was a family sitcom on Nick at Night. Oh, really? And we did 3 seasons and it was it was crazy. It was it was actually the thing that doesn't happen happened and and I remember when that did happen uh, my everything changed. I mean, I was living at home with my parents in Jersey, and then I went out to audition for a pilot, and then three months later, I moved to Los Angeles, you know, and, and have been here since. Uh, and I remember that happening, and even at that time, booking, you know, a role in in a show, by no means my show, a very small role, but from that time, the wheels really started turning, where I was like, okay, what can I, how do I never go back to college. Right. That, was, that was immediately, I was like, okay, I got this one opportunity. I need to make this thing expand. And, and even from that point on, I was 20 at the time. And I remember even then kind of being like, okay, how do I, through this path, do something that I have really wanted to do, which is, and I didn't know if it would be this show, but I was like, could it be a movie? Could it be, what could it be? where i could show a muslim family and kind of show it in a real way and kind of show so someone who felt like me
0: so what were your parents sort of when you when you moved to the opposite coast yeah. and dropped out of school you, you went to a good school right you i went, went to rutgers you Went to rutgers yeah. so what were the conversations back and forth between you and your parents
1: i mean i think there's just this you know is this really happening it was kind of surreal on yeah. a level i think they were very proud But they were also, like, my dad would just keep being like, that's amazing. Can you take online classes while you're doing that? Yeah, or how about during the summer when you're not shooting? Can you still, like, how do you finish your degree? How do you this? How do you that? And that conversation went on for a while. It probably went on for, like, four or five years.
0: It went on until last week.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It went on until I did Colbert. I think because my parents knew. Really? Yeah, because I was on a show and 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 it was it was on Nick and Night. It wasn't you know it was an amazing experience and but to them they they had no reference really for right. what was going on there. But then when I did Colbert. They were like, oh, we know Colbert. Like, they loved Colbert. It was like something they could really easily show their friends. And I think they were like, oh, okay, you'll be okay. You know Stephen Colbert. Even though I was like, no, no, I don't know him. And we talked for like two minutes backstage. Like, I don't know him. No. <laughs> but they were, you know, I think they felt like that was a moment where they felt like, oh, okay, maybe through comedy you can kind of make your own way and can kind right. of do that. Once they realized there could maybe be a self-sufficiency to making things, which, again, is actually what i believe too is kind of you want to be in a situation where you're not just waiting for calls and yeah. if you can actually make things and do things i that, that that excites me that's always excited me uh forever yeah so i think them feeling like i could get to that place was the most assuring thing but i was a working actor in la which is a really hard thing to be and they still were like this, when are you when are you going to finish that degree like that was yeah. the that was the priority well what's impressive to me is that is that you Created something
0: that, you know you created your own job. You created your own work, and I think that's the thing that you know. A lot of actors never make that next step, which is I'm going to create my own material and I'm going to teach myself to write or I'm yeah. going to do stand up. You, you know what I mean? And yeah. then I wondered if it became an active piece of knowledge for you that to to do what I really want to do, I'm going to have to make my own version of it.
1: Yeah, I mean that was from the beginning. I mean, I think you know. When I started making stuff in high school, that was so much of what was exciting to me, it was just actually putting it together and making it. And, and then it became even clearer when, you know, I did this show for three seasons and then I'd go out on auditions and no one cared that I had been on a show for three seasons. And right. it didn't really influence what was happening in audition rooms. Because I would go in an audition room and they'd be like, well, you're not really like, you're not really good looking enough to be the lead, but you're like a little too cute to be like the complete dork. And like, and so it's kind of this like weird space you go in and then they'd be like, well, and you're not ethnic enough to play the ethnic guy. Because I would get all these auditions that are, you know, a dude who's Indian or, or, you know, a dude who they really want to like walk into a room. And, oh, this Arab dude walked into a room. You know, like they, they want that feel, which is not the feel that I would get. So I was just in this acting purgatory for a while too where yeah, you
0: don't fall into a certain category yeah, I don't fall into a
1: thing and they're like are you a leading guy? Like we don't know. And very well there could be casting directors who watch my show and go, "Wow, he's really good at leading that show. I don't know if he's good at leading this other thing, but you know, I mean, you don't you never know yeah. like, where people are going to put you and and so it it just becomes exciting that you know you put yourself where you want to be. Tell me more about the stand-up side of things
0: because I'm trying to understand, like, as you're trying to write this television show and create projects for yourself, I'm, I'm assuming you're also doing three or four sets a week and, and doing stand-up. Yeah, probably, probably more than that, yeah. yeah. Was there ever a sense of whatever hits first I'll do more of, or, or do you see that much of a, of a difference between the two things?
1: Uh, I was writing stand-up. Almost and continue to write stand-up from a place of, okay, cool, I want to put this on screen. You know, just So like, your stand-up, stand-up is almost like, a like pipeline. Like you know? Research and, and, yeah. and development for the show. Yeah, it's like, okay, this, this dialogue will work. You know? and, and there's so much of my stand-up that is dialogue, not only for my character, but for other characters in the show, throughout the show, and, and I hope to continue to do that. You know? Because the thing that I love about stand-up is you're in the room with people. It's, yeah. it's you'll really feel it and you get to hear the laugh in a way that is really an important part of the process for me. Because when I'm making the show, it's almost like you hear the laugh a year and a half later. Right. You know, it's it's kind of right. this thing where it's like, Okay, cool. I just wrote really this delayed. script and can't wait till June twenty twenty. You know, I mean it's it's so it's so delayed. Yeah. And so the stand up part of it it's a really good litmus test for for kind of where where it hopefully works on screen well you said once that in stand-up you
0: really get to know yourself yeah and i wonder when i repeat that back to you what example
1: comes to mind i think through stand-up i realized just a lot of the things that give me anxiety you know i think i think that i would feel really you know i'm like oh yeah no i get it i'm cool i'm calm you know whatever and then i start writing stand-up and and kind of talking about the things that are on my mind and i'm like man i'm pretty anxious like like i'm oh these are things that i you know need to figure out you know these are right. things that i need to work through and and it uh yeah it gives you just a good window into you know what it is that is happening with you and what's important to you you know and so you just kind of gravitate towards those things and and i remember you know doing stand up during ramadan and and writing you know, for the first time really talking about believing in God. This was probably like four years ago now, and it hit me, you know, I was like, oh, and I hadn't been talking about it before, and it hit me. I was like, oh, man, this is really important to me. How have I been avoiding this? You know, and, and it must have been because I thought it wouldn't be funny or it wouldn't be something, you know, whatever it was intended. And it was a big shift for me to kind of be like, oh, it doesn't matter if something would be funny. You know, it's, it's more about what's important to you, and then it'll be funny. Of yeah, all the that is a that big shift.
0: You're up there to get a laugh. You're up there to entertain people. So it is a shift as an artist to say, "That's not what I'm going for." Yeah. Like, do do you remember a specific bit that you wrote or a specific theme that you came across where it's like, "I'm not going to judge it based upon my old way of judging if my jokes work."
1: Yeah, I I, I remember, you know, being at this show and there was this dude talking about like acid trips and stuff and the crazy bit where he was like, yeah, and then I put people in the trunk of my car. It was, it was kind of weird. And people were like dying, laughing, whatever. And then, and I just remember kind of getting up and talking about, you know, Hey, I believe in God. Like, and, and it was, it was the first joke I ever did on TV, but I wrote this joke where I just, you know, I believe in God, like God, God, not yoga. And, and, and I remember the room kind of, it was just this little, like, hipster bar in, in Brooklyn, and, and they felt like... I think they felt like I was attacking them, because <laughs> I was like... Because
0: they all believe in the yoga world. Yeah, version. they were
1: like, what? God, God? And what are you... Are you talking shit about yoga? You know, it, <laughs> it, it, it felt like I was doing hate speech or something, um, and, and totally understandably, and then I would build the bit out more, you know, and then I kind of started writing, you know... I, I remember saying that and kind of feeling like, oh, okay... This is creating a certain discomfort. And then thinking, cool, let me build that out and kind of address that discomfort and say, okay, I get it. I get why you don't feel comfortable with our religion. I've seen it. You know, I've seen, you know, I grew up in a town where I watched my gay friends struggle to come out to the religious community, you know, and that's not right. You know, and now I live in L.A., where I'm a religious person struggling to come out to the gay community (laughs) and tell them how I feel. (laughs) Because I know that they're going to think what I think is weird. And and so that, you know, it just starts building like that. You know, you you kind of feel this thing where you say, okay, I'm going to say this joke. It's not going to sit exactly the way that I thought it would. But then I'm going to address why it's not sitting that way. And then that becomes funny.
0: Yes, I do notice that in your stand up that it's almost like you've anticipated some of the responses. Yeah,
1: you know. And you happen. use
0: that as part of the part of the process to get where you want to take them, right? Yeah. Like a bad yeah, which Switch, is a classic a comedy thing of the misdirect,
1: yeah. right? Yeah. But it's but it's 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 the misdirect kind of sitting in maybe like a, a bit more of dramatic tension or a bit more of like whether it be political tension or whatever it might be, but it yeah, it's like sitting in tension for a second and then kind of stepping out. And, which is how a lot of conversations go. I think when you meet somebody, you're like, when you meet somebody who really is outside of the way you think about things, they'll say something that sounds shocking. And yes. then you talk a little further and then you say, oh, Actually, I get what's going on here. And so so much of, for me, what's exciting about it is stand-up feeling like a conversation where it's like, yeah, okay, this first thing is maybe a little bit different because it's not how I think about it. But then you hear about it and it's like, oh, no, that is funny. Or, oh, okay, I get, I get where that's coming from. Right. And I remember just the the little the little rush and the little feelings of kind of starting to really push it and kind of talk about certain things and then, yeah, and then going further. And, and, and that was, uh, yeah, that just started to become... Really natural, you know, and and I've always been comfortable on stage and always been calm on stage. And then, why do you think that is? It's there's something about the focus of the moment that is calming. I think there's something about when you're in everyday life, there are so many possibilities and there's so many ways things could go, and and you you know, your mind goes somewhere, your guilt goes somewhere, your desire goes somewhere, your, you know, attention goes somewhere, but then you're on stage and you know that everyone's looking and there's a light and I feel oddly calm because I'm like, oh, okay, I only have one thing that I need to do right now. There's an exhale to it. And, and that's what's so exciting too about making things that go on screen where it's like, there's all these things, there's all this stuff, but it's like, cool, all I got this is this can only be 30 pages, you know, and then this can only be Twenty-five minutes, and the parameters of it—it's like nice. It's nice to have—it's the, the comfort of that container. It's probably why I like like my faith. There's <laughs> a comfort. There's, right. there's a container, and 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 I think those containers, whatever your code of rules, whether it be faith or whatever we all construct something for ourselves, is you know we want to be in some sort of framing that brings the best to the to the top. Right. Comedy is in some ways, and writing the
0: greatest way to know ourselves because we live so much moment to moment looking forward that often we don't learn about ourselves and comedians are tasked with taking all those moments that we rush through and breaking them down. You're literally creating a diary of your life through having to explain your weird existence as a human being to to a stranger.
1: Yeah, no, you are. You're you're really... um There's so much you figure out about yourself when you have to explain something to a stranger, right? Right. It's like all these thoughts are in your head, and and just in a conversation with somebody, you say something, and you're like, "Oh, I just said that to myself too," you know. I didn't really form that until I had to, you know. And that's so much of the rush of being on stage or the rush of of saying something, which is, "Oh, I didn't really form it until I had to," because I know people are going to look at it, and I I know that I want to communicate in a certain way. So it's just like the perfect pressure cooker to get certain things out that might not have been in.
0: Yeah. You know, your show's been getting all kinds of critical success, and, and you've been brought back for a second season, mm-hmm. and I was curious what, for you, the
1: biggest personal triumph of your show has been. Yeah, you know, I think you, sometimes you can feel really helpless to what's happening in the world, and it can just keep, seem so insane and seems like, well, what can I even do about what's happening? And you see things like what has happened to our communities, you know, hate crimes happening against mosques and happening uh, to businesses and all of that. Around the world. Around the world. And um, when we tested the show, right now the show starts with a scene of me and my mom in the car and then I go into the mosque. When we first tested the show, uh, it started in the mosque. And the test audience that was watching the show for the first 10 minutes categorized it as a drama most similar to Homeland because it was in the mosque. Just because it was in the mosque. And because people were speaking Arabic, even though it was clearly a comedy. It took them 10 minutes until I was hooking up with a white girl for (laughs) them to realize, oh, wait, no, this might be funny. You know, this this might be not that. And so... If I think about what I'm most proud of, is that there's all this real shit happening that I am not help like like sometimes you feel helpless and I don't know what to do and 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 not that this changes anything, but if people can watch a show and see someone say "Allahu Akbar" and not go to a detonator and and see somebody you know pray because. They're trying to solve their problems, not because they're trying to do some plot. You know, if if we can, you know, we've made something that has a humanizing look at faith and the people who are in it. Um, just that being part of the framework is is something that I'm proud of and something that I feel like is a is a, a triumph on some level for me. And 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 it gets into a really sticky situation though because I don't know that a show like this is ever going to really change anything. But it's almost hoping, you know, could the work of something like this um, help the people who are doing the work? right it's kind of like two steps so it's it's like okay maybe this kind of can open the mind a little bit so the people who are on the ground can kind of like like maybe this the laughter from things like this help open the door a little so the people who are really trying to get in those doors and make change the activists who are on the ground the people who are working on changing policies the people who are donating in these communities and creating infrastructure for conversations and like creating support for all these things like those people maybe if entertainment helps open the door for their work to be more legitimate, um, that's the hope. Well, listen, I think you're too modest. I think that when
0: when you can create something that's entertaining and at the same time opens eyes culturally to something that we haven't been able to see or know, um, it, it's a huge change. It's just, it's hard to measure that kind of change. Right but if the next day after seeing your show someone can drive down the street and look at somebody a different way because they were characterized in full rather than sketched or a caricature yeah. on a show then that does change things and i and i think your show is i mean first off it's great entertainment but secondly it is it is enlightening in the attention that it pays to things that haven't been paid attention before on television i think you've done something amazing and, and it's been really great to get to know you and talk. No, to you yeah, I,
1: I think I, I, do think people will look at Muslims differently uh, if they have Hulu.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's right. But they they got Hulu. Hulu. They got to have
1: Hulu. I mean, if they don't have Hulu, I don't know what to say. I mean, <laughs> if any hate happens towards Muslims, I guarantee you, whoever did it did not have a Hulu account.
0: I like that culturally, you, no matter where you come from. Yeah. You still, you know, you still want to shill for the people writing your check. <laughs>
1: Let's, yeah. Hey, look. If you have Hulu. <laughs> you're gonna be more tolerant. That's all I can say. So you got to get it.
0: Yeah, that's right. Netflix, not so much. Netflix,
1: uh, <laughs> you know, clearly creating hate.
0: Hulu, <laughs> Hulu, creating love. Creating love. Um, thank I, you for I doing love, this. I,
1: I love Netflix too. Yeah. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't love Netflix? No. Thank you for doing this. Oh, and no. um, and I wish you all the luck in the world. And and I'll be watching season two. And, and uh, I hope everyone tunes in and, you know, it's, it's, it's a cool show. Oh,
1: thanks, man. Oh, this is really fun.
0: Hey folks, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed that. If you don't have Hulu, get Hulu and watch Rami. It's really an incredible show, and it's like nothing else on television. And when you're done with that, go to HBO and watch Rami's newest comedy special, Feelings, because that's also amazing. And you'll fall in love with this guy just like I did. He's got a unique story to tell, and I think he's an artist to watch, and I'm excited to see what he does with his career. And if you're someone who likes unique artists and watching their careers, well, you've come to the right place. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And if you haven't subscribed yet, take a minute, go to iTunes and subscribe. And that way you'll never miss an episode. It'll just show up automatically on your phone, like magic. When you do that, if you take a minute and you give us a rating and a review, that helps more people find the show. And that's a good thing. Another good thing is our television portion of Off Camera. As you may or may not know, Off Camera is also a television show and we air each week on Audience Network, channel 239, if you have DirecTV. You can see us at 6 and 9 p.m. and see what the television version is all about. And if you don't have DirecTV, you can also see the show through our very own television subscription package. You can find that by going to offcamera.com and you can sign up for our monthly package, which is only $4.99 a month and it gives you access to every show we've ever done. Now that's almost 200 shows and you can watch them anytime on any device as many times as you want. So that's a pretty good deal too. It's a great way to take a deep dive into what we're doing on this show, and especially if you're any kind of an artist, if you're an actor, if you're a musician, if you want to be a director, if you're a photographer, if you're a painter, there are conversations on here that address not only all those pursuits, but they address the very essence of what it is to be an artist and to try to make a living at something that you're also passionate about. Every single episode I do on this show, I learn something about my own career that is valuable and enlightening. So check out the television package, and you can see what you've been hearing. It's a great way to tune in with the show. You can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter, and I'm Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. Now, on my Instagram feed, you'll also get a sense of the other thing we do on this show, which is I photograph every artist that comes in after we have a conversation. And it's sort of like the completion of the portrait that starts with the conversation. And I really enjoy doing it. And you can see a lot of those images in my Instagram feed and also on the off-camera magazine, which you can get through our site as well. But the other reason I mention the photographs is because... We post some behind-the-scenes pictures on Instagram as well, and it's sort of a neat thing to see what we do here in the studio. So if you haven't tuned into that yet, take a minute, follow me on Instagram, and you can get a whole glimpse into the world of off-camera. Also, I occasionally post pictures of me jumping motorcycles, so there's that. I want to thank everybody that helps me produce this show each week. Crawford Chippy, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. These fine people work really hard to bring the show in all its formats to everybody around the world each week, and I feel lucky that I get to work with them. And I just feel lucky that I get to do this show and that this podcast can reach the entire population on Earth. It's kind of an amazing thing. You know, I grew up loving listening to the radio and getting a glimpse of the outside world that way. And when I think of how far our world has come, that I can sit here in our little studio in Santa Monica and have a conversation with somebody I admire and then a week later I can get a letter from somebody in Japan or in Italy or in South America and they've listened to the show and it has made a difference in their life or it it has given them a piece of advice or a little bit of inspiration. It's an amazing thing and I feel privileged and grateful that I get a chance to do it each week. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in and I hope you continue to do so. And on my end, we will continue to try to make the best show we can each week. Speaking of which, be sure to join me next time when I sit down with actor Scoot McNary. What dawned on me about the dyslexia is that you weren't dumb, but you think differently. I looked at it as something that was holding me back for so long that I'm different and I, I, I'm not like everyone else. And then over time, I think I switched it over to, oh, I think differently about a way to get something done or a way to do something or creatively than some of these other people. That's a positive. Let me speak up. Scoot has been on my radar ever since Halt and Catch Fire, the brilliant series about the rise of the Internet in the 80s. His portrayal of a brilliant but troubled computer engineer and entrepreneur was so nuanced and realistic that it made the show feel almost like a documentary at times. And after talking to Scoot, I understand why his character moved me so much, quite simply because Scoot pours so much of himself into his work. He literally lives in his characters, a process that, while being rewarding for the viewer, can be quite taxing on his psyche. Scoot reveals details about his unconventional childhood environment and education that led to his discovering acting. It's a fascinating conversation, and I highly recommend tuning in. Full disclosure, we also spent some time talking about motorcycles. See you next time, Off Camera.